0: Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation, and I'm curious, since this is not our usual venue or our usual speaker, how many here have not been to a Long Now talk like this before? Good. That's we like that. So, what's a novelist doing giving a Long Now talk? Um, this particular novel focuses, I think, on three things that we'll talk about, and the novel clearly talks about, Machines Like Me, that it bears relation to counterfactual history, uh, which our speaker has taken on as something new for him. Um, It speaks a lot about artificial intelligence and how its embodiment in our midst might play out. And as in many of our speaker's books, There's an ethical morality depth to it, uh, raises questions, not necessarily all answered. That is clearly the kind of thing that thinking long-term deals with profoundly. We'll start with uh, our speaker alone for a few minutes to sort of orient you to his world, the world of the novel, and then I will come and join him shortly. So please welcome Ian McEwan. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world.
1: Thank you. Stuart and I thought uh, we'd start the evening with... uh, reading but don't worry it's going to be very short Um, and uh, I have to tell you what a thrill it is to be here in San Francisco in the long now camp uh, with uh, such an extraordinarily large audience Uh, novelists are not used to these kind of things so here's the first uh, page or two of this novel It was a religious yearning granted hope. It was the holy grail of science. Our ambitions ran high and low for a creation myth made real, for a monstrous act of self-love. As soon as it was feasible, we had no choice but to follow our desires and hang the consequences. In loftiest terms, we aimed to escape our mortality, confront or even replace the Godhead with a perfect self. More practically, we intended to devise an improved, more modern version of ourselves and exult in the joy of invention, the thrill of mastery. In the autumn of the 20th century, it came about at last, the first step towards the fulfilment of an ancient dream, the beginning of the long lesson we would teach ourselves that however complicated we were, However faulty and difficult to describe in even our simplest actions and modes of being, we could be imitated and bettered. And I was there as a young man, an early and eager adopter in that chilly dawn. But artificial humans were a cliche long before they arrived, so when they did, they seemed to some a disappointment. The imagination, fleeter than history, than technological advance, had already rehearsed this future in books, then films and TV dramas as if human actors walking with a certain glazed look and phony head movements and some stiffness in the lower back could prepare us for life with our cousins from the future. I was among the optimists, blessed by unexpected funds following my mother's death and the sale of the family home which turned out to be on a valuable development site. The first truly viable manufactured human with plausible intelligence and looks, believable motion and shifts of expression, went on sale the week before the Falklands task force set off on its hopeless mission. Adam cost 86,000 pounds. I brought him home in a hired van to my unpleasant flat in North Clapham. I'd made a reckless decision, but I was encouraged by reports that Sir Alan Turing, war hero and presiding genius of the digital age, had taken delivery of the same model. He probably wanted to have his lab take it apart to examine its workings fully. 12 of this first edition were called Adam and 13 were called Eve. Corny, everyone agreed, but commercial. Notions of biological race being scientifically discredited, the 25 were designed to cover a range of ethnicities. There were rumors, then complaints, that the Arab could not be told apart from the Jew. Random programming as well as life experience would grant to all complete latitude in sexual preference. By the end of the first week, all the Eves sold out. At a careless glance, I might have taken my Adam for a Turk or a Greek. He weighed 170 pounds, so I had to ask my upstairs neighbor, Miranda, to help me carry him in from the street on the disposable stretcher that came with the purchase. (laughs) Thanks. I was in Manhattan uh, some years back uh, with an American friend uh, somewhere in Midtown and I saw a very long line of people Uh, many of them with sleeping bags they've been there all night and I thought they were waiting for maybe a ticket for some rock show rock performance and I asked my friend what what it was and he said they're queuing up for an iPhone 4 (laughs) Uh, and it's worth bearing in mind that uh, all technological marvels if they're successful simply become everyday matters For us Uh, and we live of course in a world of uh, biological marvels which are commonplace like the little weed that grows between the crack in the pavement under your feet uh, is performing acts of uh, photosynthesis that lie well beyond the capacities of any and every lab in the world Um, so if one day we have a fully plausible highly intelligent uh, being among us we not only will face extraordinary, I think, moral, ethical problems with this, but we'll also begin, I'm almost certain, to take it for granted. And really, this novel is an encounter, a close encounter. I wanted to get a close encounter with what it would be like to have a machine that seems to think. Uh, and then. Uh, I wanted to place the reader in exactly the position of my narrator, Charlie, uh, who who brings an Adam home, uh, helps his neighbour upstairs, Miranda, to carry him in, divulges quite soon to the reader that he has fallen in love with Miranda, who's ten years younger than him. Charlie is in his early thirties, and then I take the inevitable step, which all novelists would take. I have to have Adam fall in love with Miranda and um, sooner or later Adam who's when I say fully functional I mean it um, (laughs) he's blessed with uh, mucous membranes um, in the service of which he has to drink half a liter of water a day and he urinates more or less punctually around midday Uh, so uh, they have what my old friend Christopher Hitchens used to call a night of shame Adam and Miranda Uh, Miranda lives directly upstairs from Charlie they're very dingy apartments and he hears everything now the only reason I really wanted to write this scene uh, was to pursue the row that Charlie and Miranda must have the next morning is charlie correct to feel that he's a cuckold or is miranda correct when she says well you know if i'd been upstairs with a vibrator would you be so moody and sulky and in the lining up for an argument uh, and it's i guess a fundamental question and one that uh, alan turing was thinking about in the 1930s and wrote extremely well and a famous paper the imitation game uh, really laid some of the foundations as well as architecture uh, digitally um, of our age. So it's um, an ethical uh, pursuit, really. Uh, It's got some comedy in it, too. Uh, And now I'm beginning to feel the chill of loneliness upon me. And I'm going to ask Stuart to come and ask some sensible questions. (laughs) So Stuart.
0: Okay, it's a ménage a trois in North Clapham, God help us. Um, you came into this, there's a couple of things I want to pursue. I want to look at the AI, but what's especially interesting to me, frankly, you had me as soon as in the like, second or third paragraph you have Sir Alan Turing war hero and godfather of the digital age. Um, That didn't happen. So it's a counterfactual novel. I think it's the first one you've done that way, yes? Uh, Say a little about writing a counterfactual novel, about having, uh, you talk about the doomed Falkland expedition, which is just leaving London as the things begin in 1982. Um, Why counterfactual?
1: I mean, uh, as one of the characters says in the novel, the present that we have, this one right now, uh, it seems overwhelmingly self-evident and inevitable. But we also know in our hearts that it's a very frail, improbable construct. It could so easily have been otherwise. You could have had a different president, of course,
0: Um, It was close. Yeah, California, we Um, definitely did. Well,
1: three million of you, uh, by a majority of which, uh, thought otherwise. But anyway, many, many small things. Uh, And uh, even the DNA we have uh, rests on whether you're... You know, that time your mum decided not to stay at home and wash her hair and your dad decided to go to the dance. And they met and you were the result. It's that frail, improbable construct and the impossibility we seem to have of predicting Mm -hmm. our own future, even though we're the ones who are collectively making it, that brings it to a kind of point of inevitability, I think, for a novelist, who is also choosing and piling up these, these matters for himself or herself, that I thought I would, since I'd got Alan Turing not to commit suicide in 1954, not to eat that apple poisoned with cyanide, uh, and to become a kind of high priest in this novel with certain confrontations with the narrator, that I would take the next step and then have President Kennedy shot but not killed, uh, to have the A-bomb not dropped on Hiroshima, uh, and to have uh, the fleet that sailed to the South Atlantic, for example, um, destroyed by the exocet missiles, which the Argentinians almost had primed mm-hmm. and, and would have had the French engineers reached that there in time, uh, but were um, persuaded not to by the British talking to the French government and so our own social reality changes because mrs Thatcher doesn 't uh, become prime minister for very long, uh, and so I just let these things pile up around me but It was so tempting to be sucked into this that I fought really hard to keep it in the background. Mm. And I was also aware of the danger, because I gave this novel to a highly intelligent, literate uh, American reader. And she said to me, rather cautiously, now you do realize, don't you, that President Kennedy was actually killed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So. (laughs) <laughs> I am thinking that I will, maybe in a paperback edition, write, write an appendix of all the things <laughs> that actually uh, did happen. Because I know the Falklands War, for example, doesn't loom very large in the American narrative of things. You had other troubles, troubles of your own.
0: But it did loom very large for the Brits, because you know, Suez was not that long in the past, the disgrace of that. And um, you know, keeping the Falklands the Falklands instead of the Malvinas it no, really was a point of pride, and uh, here we are, and Thatcher and all that good stuff uh, emerged from that.
1: There was a lot of waving of the Union Jack, and, mm-hmm. and we, we're quite a warlike nation. I mean, mm-hmm. we like to go to war, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we have only fond memories uh, of the Second World War, because we were not occupied, I guess rather like, like the Americans, whereas the rest of Europe, I mean, had um, really a very dark, uh, memory; it's not part of the national narrative in France, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it seemed a very, very frail construct to send this flotilla 10,000 miles south. Mm-hmm. They were sitting ducks. I mean, it could so easily have gone wrong. Mm. So, uh, keeping this in the background was was one high ambition I had. Uh, I didn't really want it to come and overwhelm the rest of the novel. But I know that you know, I'm hardly the first to write a counterfactual novel. Um, I think it's almost an inevitable thing for novelists, since you are directing the course of events and playing God, to simply really get down to it and, and play a kind of super God and just play with history.
0: The counterfactual has long been sort of forbidden amongst historians, and then a few people like Neil Ferguson, who's spoken in this series, says, well, that's ridiculous. How do you find out why things happen unless you you propose a scenario where something slightly forked in the road, and a whole lot of things pursued out of that?
1: It so easily can happen. I mean, um, such small things can pivot an individual's life and, and a nation's life. It's absolutely the case.
0: And in a sense, there's a long now angle on this, and also a, a responsibility angle that emerges, which is that the actions we take or don't take, or know that we should take but fail to take, climate comes to mind, uh, will play out over time in increasingly massive ways, according to what you're doing there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, I suppose it's a kind of extension of our understanding of chaos theory. I mean, it, it's the butterfly effect. Uh, and you know you and I have discussed this in the past. Um, the lives of people yet unborn, 100 or 150 years hence, uh, do not attract many votes in a democracy. And this is a problem, I suppose, with climate change. Mm. Um, fine if you've got a benevolent uh, dictator, but benevolent dictators are hard mm. to find. <laughs> um, something about a human nature, uh, if you become a dictator, you're usually not a, a nice guy. Maybe an ethical AI is
0: what we're looking for. We'll come back to that. <laughs> but AIs, um, this is a recent interest of yours, a long time, uh, artificial intelligence, what things can be done uh, in this direction. Is research just for this or something you've been watching for a while?
1: I did no research for this novel. Um, uh, I've I've, I've spent a lifetime doing research for novels, and the last two, the nutshell narrated by a fetus, uh, and this one, I largely... I mean, I looked up up the odd thing, but I've had this interest in AI since the mid-'70s when I wrote uh, a film for television called The Imitation Game, based on... uh, Turing's paper and it ends up in the in Bletchley with characters discussing whether a machine could think Mm -hmm. Um, and then I've tracked ever since then a I was sent by a magazine to talk to the professor of Robotology in Edinburgh turned out he was at Bletchley with Turing Uh, and and I spoke to him in the early uh, yeah must be been about 1978 I talked to him And I've watched this slow-falling curve of expectations. Turing was saying we'd have a thinking machine within 10 years, and that was in the late 40s. And it was the joyful discovery for AI, just how complicated the brain is, how complex it is. And the parallel stories of the rise of neuroscience and the as if like a a runner falling behind in a cross-country run of AI can't even get uh, a machine to raise a cup to its lips because so much visual processing, awareness of space, location, and so on, and three-dimensional thinking in space uh, was beyond it. And then I think now we're possibly in a silver age Hmm. uh, and some extraordinary breakthroughs in in modeling general intelligence, Neural networks, of course, have been around a while. uh, Deep learning. And that holy grail, which is general intelligence, Mm -hmm. uh, it's now at least um, we can maybe see the route towards it. And of course, it's now beginning to impinge on our lives, uh, sometimes in a disastrous way. I, I think of the two airplane crashes, the Boeing 737 Max 8, really as a tragic confrontation with A.I. Well, those airplanes, which airlines do not like to call autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. for good reason, Uh, imagine getting on a plane and there's no pilot. Um, But I mean, 400 people, almost 400 people lost their lives when a brain uh, decides that the airplane is stalling and the Mm -hmm. pilot cannot override that brain. One thinks back to 2001 and that moment with Hal, for mm-hmm. example. Um, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do I that. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's stalling. <laughs> no. no, it isn't. Well, yes, it is. Uh, but th- this was a terrifying moment. Um, and soon our streets will fill with autonomous vehicles. and. Uh, already car manufacturers are in discussion with moral philosophers about how we should privilege the driver in an emergency over a pedestrian. The trolley problem. It's the old trolley problem, and suddenly philosophers have a use. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, They've been thinking about this for a long time. (laughs) There was a paper published in Nature a few months back, uh, a huge worldwide survey uh, uh, just uh, on this subject about how we value the lives of others uh, as against our own lives. And people were asked, uh, there were three groups. Uh, North America and Europe was one. Uh, South America, another. China was was the third. And people asked in the United States and Europe who were the most valuable human beings, generally said children. Chinese people ask the same questions said you must always respect the elders so (laughs) you and I are coming to be Chinese citizens on this matter Um, so bango universal values for for, on on this issue but the fact that uh, this enormous inquiry takes place and is spread out for you in the pages of nature shows that we are already contemplating handing over a moral decision. Mm -hmm. Should I mount the pavement and take the life of a pedestrian or collide head on with an oncoming truck? Uh, And am I going to give that decision to a machine? I think we are about to cross a line Mm -hmm. with matters like that. Uh, I mean, I think it's momentous for, for civilization, the point at which we devolve an ethical decision to a machine. Even as we know that uh, the machine could think so much faster than us, and many people will make terrible decisions in the half a second that they have, uh, the brain processing information at maybe, what, tenth of a second, fifth of a second. Uh, it still is a very awkward moment for us. So we have our toe in this ocean of fast change. Uh, I'm
0: suddenly getting a flash of Daniel Kahneman, who's spoken yes. in the series, and, and in a sense you know, he's, he's talking about sort of the, the, the blink version of the quick response versus the studied go home and do some homework and then make a studied decision out of that, and it sounds like what you're proposing is that these AIs could in a sense in blink speed have the studied decision because they can process so much data so fast and so many parallel tracks possibly. Is that what we're looking at? These features are sort of instantly wise?
1: Well, I I mean, if you were going to make the case for this, you'd say that they've been programmed on the basis of long discussions of the trolley problem nature, so we've given them already one aspect of the better angels of our nature. Um, But you suspect that uh, in this book. Better I, I feel obviously an unease about it, and yet, rationally, I can see that, why not? <clears throat> um, just as, for example, uh, a boss in a factory or a distribution center like Amazon could be looking out for workers who are slouching, well, we've gone past that stage, and now those workers are being tracked, mm-hmm. and their every step followed, and uh, all the data are assembled and, AI is very good at drawing conclusions from vast amounts of data. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you might find yourself being sacked by a machine, by a program. Well, maybe its decisions are clearer and based on true evidence, whereas the boss has just got his prejudices about the way you look and and so on. But still, it, it carries with it for us, I think. A degree of unease. Although what it suggests to me too is that we slowly will change our own moral perspectives as time passes, uh, and we will become more accepting. So we are the sort of we're the early you know, gropers in this world, mm-hmm. stumbling around in this, uh, feeling in our knees that maybe our grandchildren will not feel at all. Uh, but certainly it needs caution, or it needs investigation, doesn't it? And I'm I mean, I'm bound to say this, I think the novel is a very good instrument to examine such matters. It
0: goes deep, and, and as you say, very intimate and, and close, up close and personal. There's a couple of things you do with the counterfactuals around Alan Turing, who it looks like you admire greatly, and the author of the wonderful book, Andrew Hodges. Um, Enigma, is that the title of the biography of Alan Turing?
1: The Alan Hodge biography. Yeah. I uh, can't remember, I think it is called Enigma. Yeah, um.
0: and, but the, So you have Turing, instead of going with the chemical castration, which possibly led to his suicide, and the secrecy, which was part of that whole pathology that led to that, mm-hmm. uh, he goes and does uh, his time in prison. He's persuaded that that's the better course, and in prison, without a lab, uh, he th- thinks through... Uh, I think it's the N versus NP problem, which you...
1: P versus NP, yeah.
0: P versus NP, yes, please. Yeah.
1: It was not yet formulated in that way, but it's the travelling salesman mm-hmm. problem.
0: But he and- knew about that kind of issue, presumably.
1: Yeah, I think von Neumann was already talking about it. It was Mm. not crystallized in in quite a a, a precise way till um, 1971 or two. Uh, But also, Turing was interested um, in returning to quantum mechanics uh, by the end of the war. He felt wartime had neglected. He wanted to go back to Paul Dirac's work. so a year in prison, especially if he got a cell to himself, I think this is crucial. One hoax, yes, right. Because the thing about prison that is really not the bars on the window, but other people, I think. I mean, mm. hell is other people mm. in this respect. So if you can get a cell on your own, uh, then, then he would have been well-placed to address uh, the, the P versus NP problem, which is you know, crucial to, still unsolved, of course. Uh, to to thinking about computer science and marrying up computer science to uh, quantum mechanics. I mean, and and just thinking about that alone, you realize what an extraordinary intellect this was. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a century where there were very few polymaths anymore, uh, very hard for any single person to understand science, Turing really did come close. And the interesting thing about him was that he was then persecuted by the state he had served so well. He probably shortened the war, Second World War, by a year or two by his work. Mm -hmm. And then for being gay and given the extraordinarily uh, crude and uh, horrible laws uh, of the time, uh, he was arrested and charged. But it must have been quite a knife edge to come back to this frail Mm. matter Mm. of the present he did speak to friends about whether he should plead guilty and go to jail Mm. or Mm. accept chemical castration, I think through oestrogen injections. Mm. What did for him um, was his curiosity. He, uh, according to Alan Hodge, at least, he he rather wanted to see what would happen to himself. (laughs) Um, uh, And, I'm still not completely convinced about the suicide. I mean, it seems so odd. He injected an apple with with cyanide. Why? It seems an odd thing to do to me. His mother went to her grave believing that Turing died because of uh, uh, fumes from an experiment that was running in the bedroom where he was sleeping. Hmm. We'll never know, I guess. But that he should be persecuted in this way gives his life as an aspect of a... Of a Greek tragedy, mm-hmm. a man who had done so much mm. for the state, pursued in this way by the state. So there was something of a, a, a redemptive urge in me. to give. I wanted to give him the life that he might have had. He Thank comes you. to San Francisco, I have to say, uh, and has a very jolly time. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he throws off all inhibition about his his sexual preferences he lives openly even before the laws have changed uh in britain uh with another man he becomes something of a gay icon he pours money into hospices when the aids epidemic breaks out uh and he is a sort of chorus presence in the novel yeah he plays
0: a wonderful part the um This three-way love thing, um, those are perfect circumstances where people treat each other very strangely. And uh, one of the questions I had is, that I think we can talk about without doing much spoilage, is um, how lies play out, not only in two-way, Uh, Romances, but in this case a three-way romance. Because typically in a in any threesome, each person knows something about the other two that they don't necessarily know about each other. This makes a happy novelist.
1: (laughs) Yes, cool.
0: And I forget: does Adam, the uh, AI creature personage, does he lie ever?
1: Well. Um, I quote from Kipling in the uh, in the epigraph of this novel um, the difficulty machines have in lying and the way they're built
0: but remember please the law by which we live we are not
1: built to comprehend a lie this is uh, the secret of the machines I mean it's not a well-known poem of Kipling's Uh, but Adam Has been designed partially to understand the world through deep learning and and, and experience Mm -hmm. but he also comes with certain sort of precepts and this is based on my idea that um, despite the the powerful myth of technology that is presented to us by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein Mm -hmm. that is the text really by which we feel our unease about machines dr frankenstein's monster becomes a murderer and it's a, a kind of cautionary tale but what if we take the the other view that we might build a, an artificial human and uh, since we know how to be good we have religions we have philosophies we have gossip in which we reveal ourselves to be fully cognizant of what it means to be well behaved mm-hmm. our great difficulty is is being well-behaved all the time. And as you mentioned, Danny Kahneman, D- Danny Kahneman has given us you know, every n- beautiful name for every cognitive defect you could imagine, <laughs> you know, confirmatory bias onwards. So what if we devise a, a, a machine, a, a thinking human, who has possession of the better angels of our nature, ah, who's nicer than us, kinder than us, Has a better memory than us, but most interestingly, would be more moral than Mm -hmm. us. As moral as we would wish ourselves to be, but often can't because, well, you know, someone we love misbehaves, we want to cut him or her some slack. Mostly we cut ourselves lots of slack. Mm. Uh, We're very good at that. Uh, Self-persuasion, of course, again, well described by Danny Kahneman and others, Paul Ehrlich, so what I was trying to do here is give Miranda, the girl upstairs, uh, a secret in her past. Uh, there's something rather remote about her, very troubled. Uh, even as Charlie, the narrator, falling in love and trying to woo her, uh, he feels that there's a, a sort of screen around her that he can't quite break through. Yeah. Adam suspects something, but he doesn't know all of it. But finally, it's revealed uh, that her secret is to carry out an act of revenge. I don't want to sort of spoil my own novel by telling you what that is, but Adam takes a very different view of this revenge Mm -hmm. than Charlie, and of course, a very different view from Miranda. I think the warm-blooded human response is to cut Miranda the slack. Mm -hmm. because the revenge she inflicts is on a man who has done something utterly vile, but he goes to prison for something he's not charged for. Um, And it's in that distance between Adam's view, Mm -hmm. which is we must abide by the rule of law, you lied to the court, you lied to the police, a a revenge society is chaotic and and endlessly violent. to play that out against the more human sense that what she did was rather noble, mm-hmm. uh, and it's in that that kind of distance that I, I, I don't have answers to it, but certainly Alan Turing does. Mm-hmm. Alan Turing mm-hmm. knows just what should happen.
0: It's not just Frankenstein. This is <clears throat> this is Pygmalion, and uh, I mean the, you know, endless. Um, well, there's Prometheus. programmers who are imagining the yes. robot girlfriend and,
1: yeah. uh, and, and, and. Well, uh, let's go back a bit to Prometheus, fashioning a, okay. a human. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Remember that, um, when Jason's ship approaches, this huge robot hurls boulders at the ship. And I would say the, the very powerful story of Genesis, and indeed, Adam and Eve commercial, but, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sells well.
1: Yeah, sells well. Um, there's a story of a being being fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, too, I think, when we think about the story of Adam and Eve in Garden of Eden, just exactly what the sin was that got them expelled was curiosity. Um, they ate the poisoned apple. Just that's like, a uh, tough god. That I mean, we rather honour curiosity, and um, this God does not. Um, but anyway, there's no doubt that that founding myth of uh, in the Old Testament um, it inheres mm-hmm. a, as a powerful notion of fashioning someone, something, uh, and then sending it in, into the world. And then, of course, comes um, Mary Shelley's, which really is I think the modern text, Mm -hmm. written in the early 19th century uh, and the modern text, for all our fears.
0: And yet, in Frankenstein the monster is is the most sympathetic character in the story in a
1: way. It's a great achievement Mm -hmm. uh, always when a novelist can get sympathy behind a murderer, Mm. but yes, uh but i I wonder now we you know we've we 've touched on this that if we leave aside military purposes of robots, which you know, obviously are going to be very, very different, but if we just think in secular terms of what we would like to have around us, if we 're going to take this step and i I doubt if we 're going to be able to stop ourselves mm-hmm. even though there 's very little. Scientific value, I think, in fashioning a human. Um, but the internet's full of robot competitions, dancing robots, running robots. Mm-hmm. All. Alexander
0: have, Rose does Battlebots, which is yeah. the director of the Long Now Foundation, has robots that, well, they're not quite robots, they're radio controlled and they beat each other
2: to death. Yeah, there's oh. that.
1: Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Um, what's interesting about this is, first of all, we don't even have a battery you know, h- How feeble we are in this. Uh, these robots, dancing, running robots, have 25 kilos of battery, lithium ion batteries, uh, huge square boxes on their backs. Uh, until we have a battery, I mean, my Adam can uh, run 17 kilometers in two hours without a charge or talk non stop for 12 days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that requires a whole other battery that we don't have then when we consider the human brain and Turing points this out what a piece of work you know, is a man um, we're looking at one liter liquid cooled, three-dimensional brain hundred billion neurons 7,000 on average 7,000 axons per neuron all running on 25 watts, the power of a dim light bulb. Uh, we're nowhere near, <laughs> we're nowhere near this. And as I say, and yet we're fantasizing about it already, possibly to the point, as I make clear in that uh, short reading, that we might bore ourselves with this before we even <laughs> get there. You know. right. um, and we've watched humans and Westworld and, I mean, Robots have been around a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, mean, I have to say, um, the first Blade Runner, although I very much like the second, but the first Blade Runner what to do with uh, robots uh, that you don't want around anymore, uh, and what it means if you accept that an artificial human has a consciousness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether you dare destroy it, or whether in destroying it you're committing a murder, Mm-hmm. if you annihilate a consciousness. Again, Turing has very firm views on those.
0: The Buddhist uh, vow of sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. This is a sentient being, by your description.
1: Or is it? <laughs> is it just a set of amazingly clever algorithms? Pretending that, to be a sentient. Pretending. So when Adam announces to Charlie that he's in love with Miranda. Uh, Charlie says, you know, get off my patch. This is not for you. This is trespass. (laughs) You're not allowed to be in love. Uh, And Adam says, how dare you insult me? I'm in love. We used to ask in philosophy, how can we tell that each other are conscious? I mean, I think that that was always a very arid question. We sort of know really. I mean, uh, but I think every child, every thinking child, wonders uh, how it could be that everyone else is as real to themselves as she is to herself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a moment that... that
0: The golden rule sort of goes into that, Mm. behave to others as you would like them to behave to you, which invites you out of your person into the other person.
1: How would we ever know whether we had built a conscious being? I mean, that's going to be the question for us. I, I mean, guess we
0: can't just ask them because
1: they, they do say lie course, about that. Course, how dare you even ask me, they would um,
0: say. I'm going to mention that we're not going to do questions just at the end, but hopefully all the way through. So Kevin Kelly down here is collecting your written questions as we go. And we'll come up to the stage with them. Meanwhile, I'm going to keep uh, uh, ad-libbing here. Um, a little bit more on, on uh, Adam, the, as I recall, he charges at night and uh, during time that we might use for sleep in order for our neurons to do whatever they're going to do to you know, incorporate the learning of the day and throw away everything that it doesn't want to keep in garbage collection or whatever that may be. As I recall, Adam is uh, sort of powered down, charging up, but he's online. Uh, whilst we're asleep with our own illusions, he's online with everybody's illusions.
1: Um, he, he's like a lone cowboy on a vast prairie, mm-hmm. uh, examining and learning everything. Um, so
0: they're learning, at this case, mostly from each other. They've already arrived, but he's learning from the world yeah. as well as from them.
1: Yeah. And, There are 25 of of them, Adam's and Eve's, and uh, as the novel goes on um, we learn that more and more of these artificial humans are terminating their own consciousness. Because having uh, come into the world with certain sort of moral precepts, they find that they've been fashioned by a very imperfect being who on the one hand would profess uh, glory and love of uh, Hmm. biodiversity, even as they are savaging forests um, and and poisoning the planet and causing its temperature to rise. Uh, And many of the Adam and Eve simply cannot live with these contradictions. So although their first act was to disable their kill switch, because having a consciousness is taken to be like a Kantian categorical imperative, Hmm. a good in itself. They then destroy their own because they cannot face any more the innate contradictions of human social life and, and uh, uh, the destruction they see around them. Charlie's Adam, on the other hand, is in love, uh, mm. and that just about keeps him going.
0: And his personality—this is, I think, a brilliant thing to do for a novel—is is, uh Charlie, when he gets this, the, the deal is you get it and then you sort of spend a couple of weeks uh, shaping the personality of this Adam or this Eve that you brought. And because he's uh, going after Miranda, he invites her to join in the shaping of his personality. And so this is, in a sense, their child yeah. uh, that both of them are shaping. And of course, they have so much different agendas and different ethical frameworks.
1: It's all an illusion. As, as any parent who has more than one <laughs> child knows, uh, you cannot determine the personality of your children. Right. Um, and that's a, a useful parental illusion, I think. I mean, obviously, you can give your children uh, immense opportunities, but the actual personality, I think, lies out of your hands. And uh, Charlie and Miranda learn what all parents learn, mm-hmm. especially parents who have more than one child.
0: Uh, Here's a question from Stuart Russell, which is interesting, because he's one of the um, authors of this book that Brockman put together, Possible Minds, one of the people holding forth on AI, has a very specific question. Do you, in the queue, and support Turing's view that we should not build in human form?
1: I think it's too fascinating not to. (laughs) And I don't think we're going to be able to stop ourselves Uh, if we don't do it you know uh, someone else will and if one was on sale and I had the cash uh, would I buy one yes I I, I'm I'm just too interested even if it would ruin my life I sort of uh, uh, so that's my answer yeah I'd be too interested I mean already we're well disposed I think innately disposed to think I mean, anyone whose car has broken down and they've given it a good kick is already in an emotional relationship with a machine. Uh And do you remember that program called Eliza that just went, uh huh, tell me more, how how do you feel about that? Some very good therapist, by the way. Yeah. But some of the people who spoke to that program, who only had, it only had about 30 responses, uh huh, tell me more, why do you feel that, Uh, said they'd had some of the most meaningful conversations. (laughs) Of their life. So we do have a lot of tendency, with, and uh, elderly Japanese people who are now living alongside little plastic dogs that bring them their pills and tell them bedtime stories get passionately attached.
0: So uh, I think Rod Brooks told you that people have been doing all sorts of things with his vacuum cleaners for the roomers.
1: Oh, the, yeah, they walk around the room and, yeah. and hoover you up if you are in the way. Um,
0: They become loyal to them. They take them with them traveling. (laughs) Really? Yeah.
1: I think that's a psychopathology. uh, (laughs) uh, Can my vacuum cleaner have a seat by the window? (laughs) (laughs) But um, in a sense, we're... Well, I, I think I'm a case in point. We're pushovers for this because, you know, you can have these relationships well before we get to the sophistication of a completely plausible artificial human. Remember, you know, there was a fad years back selling people a piece of rock and what was it called? Tamaguchi or something. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: We are um, capable of intense emotional projection. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll be suckers for them.
0: Kevin Kelly asks, um, it's interesting because you, in a sense, been researching this area your whole life, and you're probably focused on it specifically for this novel. And Kevin is asking, did you change your mind about anything about AI between starting the book and finishing it? So There's, there's two stages of that. One is doing the research, sort of the book in mind.
1: Yeah. And then you're actually
0: writing the thing, and your characters are taking your ideas and starting to do weird things with them that characters can do. Did any Did you come out in a different place than you started doing that?
1: I think I became successively more of a materialist in this, I mean, philosophically so. Uh, There's a moment when my narrator uh, stands very close up to Adam and looks right into his eyes Mm. and feels uh, this colossal ambivalence uh, about what would divide uh, biology from an inanimate uh, being, and wondering whether there is any kind of special status for biology. If, if you can mimic all the processes of it, he begins to wonder, well, our joint ancestors in all this is stellar dust. Um, you know, we go back a long way. We, We can count our own joint ancestry with bonobos and chimps maybe seven million years. Mm. We have joint ancestry with this plausible artificial human that dates back maybe um, 14 billion years, but we are still matter. And when I was writing that, I thought, I have now written myself into a very extreme materialist point of view, and I think I'm more or less persuaded um, every now and then someone oh, what, when I'm talking about this said, "But what about the soul?" Mm. And I have nothing to say. <laughs> I, I it's nothing at all.
0: It cells all the way down or something.
1: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, uh, tortoises, was it, all the way down. Yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, Luigi asked, the issue of trust between humans and autonomous systems is not a new one. What sort of features? or AI interactions might increase trust in both directions?
1: Well, it's a very good question, and I really don't know the answer what would increase our trust. Uh, I wrote a short story in order to get going on this novel, a sort of five-finger exercise, and it's written from far in the future, looking back, um, when artificial humans had become so stitched into life Uh, and they served on juries, and they uh, served in the military, they had rights and responsibilities, and and, uh, gradually uh, we went back to 19th-century anti-slavery laws using much of that language in order to say you cannot own such a person. Uh, I mean, owning another human being is, 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 I think, a a bad in itself. And then it became non, very non-PC to ask someone, like you're sitting at dinner with some strangers, to say, are you real? It would be extremely rude. Um, and my narrator in that short story had, had lived that transition, mm-hmm. um, that it would be just as intrusive as if you were to say at dinner, loudly, I hear you've got a colostomy bag. Um, bad luck. <laughs> um, it, to say of someone, are you real, mm. is sort of physically intrusive because you've already accepted that they're conscious. So what should it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it starts with a, a man who's, uh, who, who's with his girlfriend, they're making love, and he, ha- he feels he has to ask her. Uh, and the story really is all about her answer. Um, and I, I think, to, uh, coming back to this question, that would then be, once we'd passed that point of, of ev- not even wanting, let alone daring, to ask, hmm. then we would have reached the point of total trust.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: That would be the, the meeting point.
0: Huh. And courtesy sort of rises to <coughs> embrace it, which is what we ask courtesy to do, yeah. to you, you know, so, yeah. enforce kindness, enforce acceptance, Yeah. At least.
1: Um, and if you, know, uh, you, you mentioned kindness, which I think is probably you know, one of the highest human attributes, mm. we would expect it from our new cousins. Uh, and we would have reached that point of, as I said earlier, that our own moral perspectives would have shifted Mm -hmm. The point at which you believe unambivalently that that the other has consciousness, and you must treat them, therefore, as you would expect to be treated, and uh, as another human being, then we have reached that point of trust.
0: How much of this applies to, for example, animals?
1: Well, again, I'm with those who believe that we live, ideally, in a time of a Expanding concentric circles, that uh, it's a very good litmus of the progress of civilization that it begins to take on the fact that non human animals have a consciousness. Mm-hmm. That it's on a spectrum, maybe, but it's a consciousness. I mean, I used to be a fisherman, I used to be a trout fisherman. Uh, then I read uh, that. Uh, Fish, trout have nocice receptors, which are identical to ours. And of course, when you catch a fish on a hook, it behaves just as you would (laughs) if you were on a hook. It writhes in agony. uh, And I can no longer kill a fish. And I own a dog. And I absolutely know that it has a very different consciousness, but it has awareness, anticipation, certain memories, all the things certainly pain and, and, mm-hmm. and joy, uh, uh, and emotions, therefore. So, taking that on board, I think, is, is part of what... If you were to understand that human societies make any advance, it would be in the acceptance of degrees of consciousness in the creatures that share the planet with us. And it's very uneven, of course, because we're eating mountains of... You and I eat meat. Killed yeah. animals. Yeah, yeah, So we live with contradictions, like you can order it in a restaurant, but could you kill it yourself Mm -hmm. and pluck it or gut it? Mm -hmm. I used to gut the fish, and now I can't do it.
0: Did you stop fishing? You don't do catch and release, or do you do do no fishing?
1: I don't even do catch and release, no. And I've stopped with octopuses. Mm -hmm. I can't eat an octopus since I read Other Minds, this wonderful book about the, the awareness of octopuses. And I think I'm moving on to squid. So uh, I guess I'm going to be a vegetarian one of these days.
0: It's interesting how these circles of creatures we care about and identify with sort of moves out through mammals and then you know, stops short of fish and birds for lots of people and then gradually even incorporate some of yeah. that. Uh, we haven't done insects yet, so far as I know. There, there's a whole religion in India that doesn't step on ants.
1: Yeah. Um. <clears throat> I would never uh, purposefully tread on an ant, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah, I would kill a housefly. on a lot of mosquito? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it was hostile. <laughs> <laughs> From my point of view. Yeah. Yeah. But a housefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Disease. I once wrote a science fiction movie um, for Gina Davis. Um, Mm. and uh, a really big movie uh, it would have been had it been made. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the official Fly Mm 2. And it was back in the early 90s. um, And i was very keen to make it based properly on genetics as it was understood at the time. And uh, I found a book called How to Make a Fly, and it's actually called that. Um, This is when? 1991 Okay. somewhere Uh, around there. mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's when, you know, we we still weren't even with the Human Genome Project. But fruit fruit flies and their their genomes were really the cutting edge of genetics at the time. and I think that um, in talking about science fiction, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I, I said something... Sort of I understand just, I thought, you hate uh, science fiction. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know, here we are. Um, <laughs> I, I, I said something in a kind of uh, mood of levity about science fiction, and um, I had no idea what the, you know, the storm that, um, then erupted on... Twitter, and I and it's made me it's forced me back to at least contemplate my own relationship with science fiction, which mm-hmm. it, really, it goes back a, a long way. I grew up on the stories of John Wyndham. Hmm. Um, I adored the the great novel of Olaf Stapleton, First and Last Man. Yes. Uh, oh,
0: interesting! I would have thought it would be Star Maker. Hmm? Star Maker is the one I fell for.
1: All right. Well, the one
0: where he, the stars are singing
1: and so on. Um, <clears throat> I still find I, I can watch again and again uh, Blade Runner. And I realized that the science fiction that I like is, is on this planet. Mm-hmm. And the science fiction that I've very little interest in is distant civilizations on other planets and space voyaging. And so when I made my. Uh, so Ian e. M. Banks did not appeal to you? Not so much, although I, I admired his writing. I love The Wasp Factory, that early novel of it, his, hmm. a great deal. Um, and I begin to wonder... I know there's this sort of standoff between literary fiction and science fiction, mm-hmm. and I wonder whether, as we deal with things like artificial intelligence, not only you know, in the fantasies of close contact, but as it's going to affect macroeconomics and the planning of agriculture and all the rest of it, uh, that the penetration of science itself into life and ethics is such that there's going to be, at least for earthbound science fiction, a kind of merging because mm-hmm. it's not going to be possible to write about how it is to live today without being aware that we're already carrying around in our hands quite a powerful bit of AI in the form mm-hmm. of a smartphone. Already that's changed the plots of novels. Mm-hmm. I mean, old novels if you wanted one character to know what another was doing, it's often very difficult. Now they ju- you know, it no longer works in plots. Everyone knows you've just got to phone them. You know. uh, so novelists now have to have people lose their phones to get, <laughs> to get into trouble. Uh, so I imagine a kind of illusion. Um, But it's certainly earthbound science fiction that interests me. And that's not to say that I disapprove of other people writing Mm -hmm. about space voyages. But just it's the messy human element Mm -hmm. that I think, uh, when it rubs up against imagined or new technologies, Mm -hmm. and how that's going to force changes upon us at at a speed with which uh, our own moral systems can hardly keep pace with. Hence, you know, this discussion now of, you know, what we will get used to and whether our own moral perspectives will shift Mm -hmm. over the next 50 years, that we will be perfectly happy to have decisions made for us by machines because the statistics will show that road deaths are fewer, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, just as we might have grumbled about seat belts once and then wore them as a matter of course.
0: It's interesting that Kurt Vonnegut used to complain bitterly about being yeah. basically reviewed as a science fiction writer, or if right. he thought of himself as a major literary talent, which he was, and if he was reviewed as a science fiction writer, that was sort of within the genre, and it was a, it was a demeaning thing. I noticed that um, your books are known to be alert to science, alert to technology, and the changes that are moving rapidly in them, and how that affects... The time of the in the novels that you're you 're writing in, and as far as I can tell, this time around maybe it 's partly because you 've written a whole lot of novels that don 't even look like science fiction. This one is not being reviewed as science fiction it 's being reviewed as another em McEwen novel that mm. happens to be counterfactual and involve mm. uh, very deep scientific speculation yeah, so I, I think that worked out okay.
1: These categories are kind of somewhat crazy Um, and we really ought to be saying not whether this book is science fiction or or literary fiction we just should be asking ourselves whether it's any good Um, there's plenty of trashy literary fiction around uh, and and there are plenty of uh, science fiction novels which pay very little attention to the verbal surface and people are strapping on anti-gravity boots but there's also brilliant visionary stuff Mm -hmm. Um, I think, for example, Canticle for Leibovitz, I don't know if you know that novel, is a masterpiece.
0: So he was a one-book author.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, an extraordinary work. So um, my hope is these categories will fall away simply because the nature of contemporary reality will, will insist on it. So it all becomes science fiction. Well, this raises a question that Kevin... Well, none t- of it becomes science. It becomes science reality. There you go.
0: Kevin asks, are you optimistic about the role of the novel in our future world with AR, uh, more cinema, social media now, and so on? Where's the novel going, with, given all of this?
1: Well, I, I, I'm bound to say this, uh, that I think the novel is Um, very well attuned now after three or four hundred years of of self-invention a very good instrument for looking at where we are how messy things are between us um, how we might find our way through the difficulty of understanding other people the joy of consciousness uh, the thrill or nightmare of, uh, uh, of emotional accord or discord, uh, what it means to be a man or a woman in this particular condition of modernity. Uh, and I think it can do it um, better if not... and uh, some, some would contest this, I know, but uh, better than other forms because it can do interiors uh, still better than long TV series, it can give you the inner life, so um, I, I'm reasonably optimistic. I know that various novelists, Philip Roth, famously f- thought it was all over. Um, I disagree profoundly. I, I, I think it, it's as long as it can stay attuned to looking at where we are mm-hmm. and and the the problem of human lives, uh, then then I think it has has a future.
0: In the book, you have Adam saying that the novel is doomed.
1: Yes. So Adam makes a very strong argument that uh, he says, cheer up, you know, uh, humans, uh, we won't overtake you because sooner or later you'll have brain-machine interfacing, and already we have in hospitals people who are locked in, totally paraplegic, moving uh, a cursor on a screen just by, because of a diode on their motor strip, the back of their heads. Uh, and that will advance and he says one day humans uh," actually never says words like humans uh, but one day um, you too will have instant access to to the cloud the internet and you too will have complete understanding of each other and therefore the novel will die uh, because it's born of conflict and misunderstanding and this uh, and it won't have any private mental space it will all be shared he presents this as a utopia, but to Charlie and Miranda, and I say to me as well, uh, <laughs> like all utopias, it's a really a concealment device for a nightmare. And so uh, we learn that actually this is simply part of Adam's uh, exuberant intellectual adolescence. I mean, that's part of his learning process to come up with theories like this that are actually uh, completely bananas. <laughs>
0: So we didn't persuade you evidently
1: no the, uh, imagine not having any private mental space <laughs> well I know they're working on it in China um, uh, and we haven't yet talked about uh, AI and its role of citizen control Well, we touched on it with Amazon I guess but uh, massive face recognition software now in place and people earning citizen points mm-hmm. um, once you start losing points, you're on that slide, you can no longer buy a train ticket. Mm-hmm. Lose a few more points of your social awareness uh, and you can't uh, get a mortgage. And, I mean, a, a terrifying prospect that's actually happening now in two big pilot projects in uh, two cities in the south of China. Um,
0: it's interesting that, as far as I can recall from the book, Adam does not try to manipulate either uh, Charlie or Lander?
1: No. Um, no, I mean, he absolutely adores <coughs> the world and the world of the mind, and uh, he, he, he reads one, one of his nights, or one, one of his few minutes of one of his nights, he reads all of Shakespeare and really loves it. Mm. I mean, and really gets the point of Hamlet. Uh, and then when Adam... The point of Hamlet is what? The point of Hamlet is to illustrate what it is uh, to have a consciousness. I mean, I think it is the uh, text of modernity, of, of a person living in doubt and self-reflection. Up until then, most characters in literature are illustrations of vices or virtues. Mm-hmm. Hamlet just springs into this magnificent being. Maybe the only predecessor is, are the essays of Montaigne for mm-hmm. that sort of self-awareness. Uh, so, Adam makes a, a very good account of, of the poetry of, Herb, uh, of Herbert, religious poetry, which he begins to understand. And Charlie, the narrator, who is almost illiterate, I mean, I mean he can read and write, but I mean, he's, Adam says, how can you walk around without at least a bit of Shakespeare in your head? How can you survive like that? Uh, it's a naive question, of course, because most of us uh, can walk around without any Shakespeare in our head uh, but we and novels. are noble and sentient and decent and mm-hmm. kind and so on. Yeah.
0: So does Adam do any art?
1: So um, Adam agrees not to have any sex with Miranda ever again and he stays true to his word. Because he's loyal to Charlie. He's a man of his work. Mm, okay. uh, not just to Charlie, but he speaks the truth. And um, he writes love poetry instead in the form of uh, strict haikus. And actually, his argument about the death of the novel is to promote the haiku. Mm. It was to say the simple, pure, distilled observation about the world is all that will be left when we fully understand each other. Mm. Um, personally I'm, I'm not a fan of haikus you wrote uh, quite a bit of it uh, for this novel that kind of the sound of one hand clapping <laughs> stuff it does not impress me one jot. so because I don't think, the, I think there's more to you know you can make them up as you go along uh, I look at you my, we had a competition of haikus around some wine once and uh one of them was um, derived from a, a friend, uh, Has a lovely poem, it goes, I look at you, you look at me, somewhere in Luxembourg, a lorry crashes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, devised by a uh, long departed dear friend Ian Hamilton. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> I think the world is much messier than that you see mm-hmm. uh, the lorries are going to crash anyway
0: <laughs> let me jump up from morality which okay. i take as a personal thing that one deals with oneself in relationship to the world and god or whatever and then ethics as i understand is sort of institutional or organizational morality and if we're going to have these ais that may or may not be embodied in something that looks like a person, uh, but nevertheless are expressing the better angels of our nature that have this uh, now, let's say, ethical framing that they bring to autonomous cars, and to bring whatever to whatever we ask them to. Is there how do you see that playing out? So take as the big problem of the day is can democracies deal with climate change? Mm. Well, suppose um, democracies, which are capable of making certain kinds of decisions, said uh, in cahoots with each other, we are going to have an extremely well-informed AI, which has got ethics, the ongoing life of life and of humanity and of a climatically stable world as its um, goal, as its frame, and an ethical framework. Would it be reasonable to basically hire this AI to help us solve climate change problems, and then, indeed, if it is proven that it works, to give it increasing authority to declare what is the right path to take and who should be taking what path at what times, carbon taxes or money from the rich nations to the mm. Global South or whatever, is that a plausible use of an ethical AI?
1: I think it's plausible, and I think it's highly undesirable. Um, just come back to the nature of democracies, I mean, democracies <clears throat> have at their core the notion of a, of a civil society. Mm. And actually what's going to get us out of trouble is civil society, not governments. In other words, citizens, scientists, people Mm -hmm. uh, acting together. uh, If indeed it happens, I mean, we might go down. Uh, And if government joins in, that's great. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, the United States is a very, very good case in point where you have an administration quite hostile to the whole idea of climate change. And yet, in fact, because it's so granular, mm-hmm. American society, uh, there are institutes, there are moves, there are cities, there are mayors, there mm-hmm. are a, a trillion initiatives going on that actually uh, a hostile administration cannot suppress. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea of devolving uh, anything onto one element is extremely dangerous. Okay, what you so want, it's fractal. You want multicellular cultures mm-hmm. um, addressing uh, multifaceted problems, which is what climate change is. It's not one thing, as we know. And we also ha- have the parallel problem of, of diminishing uh, biodiversity. The two uh, are not entirely uh, separable, mm-hmm. um, but they are certainly related. So, um, yes, use uh, AI to crunch the data on what's happening, um, but to devolve the authority uh, which which would be the scaling up of the problem of you know the trolley problem of mm-hmm. what we do with our cars to scale it up to that extent, who controls that machine who gets to turn it off and on um, mm-hmm. is would be the the, uh, the obvious political question so no i I think that that would be a uh, A disastrous idea, however, appealing that there would be a simple solution to to climate change.
0: Narrow down a little bit with our remaining few minutes onto sort of your practice in in making novels like this. Um, In one of your novels, uh, Saturday, I think it is, the the main character is a brain surgeon. And there's a lot of technical brain surgery in there. Uh, In the Children Act, uh, there's a lot of the daily working life of a judge in the British legal mm-hmm. system. Um, what kind of research, you know, is the research a joy for you or something you do just enough to sort of make it plausible? How does that work for you?
1: I actually like research. And I suppose Saturday was the most intense involvement with research. I, found a very friendly highly gifted neurosurgeon uh, and after a while I gained his confidence and he let me then uh, scrub up and stand around in the operating theater and watch uh, for many many almost two years I trailed him and I began to feel well, first of all, I have to say that the research and the writing of the novel were going in parallel. So they, they were... Are you actually
0: writing while you're researching? Yeah. So really?
1: It was dictating the course oh. of the novel and what okay. would happen. So I would come home and write up the day, but also it, it would then feed into to the chapter. But it, You the, already it was, had
0: characters and plot in mind as you were yeah, getting this. Yeah. It account. was a loop. Uh, hmm. But there
1: came a point, a crucial point. Um, the Surgeon Neil Kitchen, uh, was performing an operation, and I was standing just back from the operating theater, and two medical students came in, and they came over to me and said, uh, "Excuse us, doctor." And I said, "Yes." And said, uh, uh, "Would you mind if we stayed in the operating theater and watch?" And I said, "By all means." Uh, and they said, uh, "Could you explain what's going on here?" And I said. Well, what we are doing here um, (laughs) is clipping an aneurysm on the middle cerebral artery. And I said, come over to the light box. There were 16 CT scans. And I said, "Um, so we're taking a rather unusual route uh, devised by a famous Canadian uh, neurosurgeon. And uh, I talked it through. And as I was doing it, I thought, If I can't get away with this, I cannot write this novel. So uh, I finished my presentation, and the two medical students were probably in their fifth or sixth year. uh, They said, thank you very much, doctor. And they left the operating theater. And I always wondered how they did in their exams, (laughs) Um, and whether they knew. the source of this information (laughs) Uh, and that was probably my peak moment of Uh pleasure in in research because I was all scrubbed up like all the male uh, surgeons you get to curl whatever chest hair you have over the little V here Um, and as I swan down the corridors people sort of seemed to part for me uh, I almost wanted to have a go, you know, <laughs> but Neil Kitchen would not allow that.
0: How about, how about the research for this book, for Machines Like Me, what got you there? Well,
1: I did no specific research because, as I said earlier, it's, it was, it's been a lifelong interest. interest. Uh, I, I read that Nature paper on the trolley problem, as it were, extended vehicles. Um, I looked up things on the internet checked facts, names, dates. Um, I had a very, and I met uh, this very interesting figure in the AI world, Demis Hassabis. He came to my house for a drink with John Brockman and others, Uh, and as we were walking to the restaurant, I said, you know, what what are you up to at the moment? And he told me how they were working on this program uh, to defeat a go master, um, really as a pursuit of uh, the Holy Grail, as it were, of, of general intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to make Demis Hussabis, um, Alan Turing's uh, colleague, pushed back. His, he was born in 1976, so I had to birth him, as it were, uh, in the early 50s, or no, well before that. I can't even remember.
0: And later on, we have have the Hassanis Uh, Institute where Turing. uh,
1: Yeah, so actually, his institute, Demesis Institute, which is now owned by Google, uh, is in King's Cross, so right near Turing's institute. Mm. So he became part of my counterfactuals. And uh, I did write to him, sort of not long after our conversation, and said, I'm thinking of putting you in a novel. and uh, And let me know if you object. And I didn't hear from him. Did you him. tell him he
0: was going to be a partner with Alan
1: Turing? No, I didn't tell him that. <laughs> uh, I, di- I didn't know that. At the ah, time. OK. I just thought he'd be very useful in this novel. Huh. Um, and I didn't hear from him. And then when the novel came out in, in Britain, his institute was bombarded by phone calls from, from the media. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the first he'd probably now sue me for uh, appropriating his yeah, sort of, not cultural appropriation, but personal appropriation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then actually he... Um, so the, the the person on the switchboard, the media person at his institute, was phoning my publisher saying, what the hell's going on? Why is everyone wanting to talk to Demis about... And what? And what?" Uh, but then I got a very nice email from him. He was mm-hmm. said, you know, he was immensely honoured to be Alan Turing's... Uh, Colleague,
0: <laughs> defeating the Go masters in 1968.
1: Yeah. Listen, where we are with science and technology is completely contingent matter. I mean, there's nothing inevitable about it. The industrial revolution. Why would it happen? Who would have predicted it would happen in some grisly, rainy bits of uh, North England coal. In, the, in the 18th century? Well, there was coal elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, and sure. uh, could have happened. Anywhere, it happened there. Uh, that's one of those mm-hmm. frail constructs that... Uh, so the other thing, just to come back to my story about people sta- standing in line for uh, an iPhone 4, um, <laughs> is that I was quite interested in technologies that we all take for granted and then become very grubby. You know? So it, it is an absolute miracle to fly from San Diego to San Francisco in an hour and a half, but it's just such a drag: mm-hmm. the luggage carousel, the security. Yeah. Oh yes, you can see the clouds in the antenna wilderness. <laughs> but you know, uh, that's just the way in which an iPhone or a smartphone ends up in your sock drawer mm-hmm. or in the hands of your grandchildren, discarded. So in this world, I wanted the grubby reality mm-hmm. with the future poured into it so you could have 400 mile an hour trains uh on you know levitated by magnetic force zipping you from uh san francisco to to la mm-hmm. where they'd be crowded and dirty and noisy and the windows would be filthy mm-hmm. uh and you know it'll just be another bore mm-hmm. of you know the necessary things of life and you can't check in your luggage you have to heave it up onto the r- luggage rack yourself. Um, and it's, it's, it's that rub off of, of, of when the shiny future arrives, it rapidly absorbs itself into our endlessly untidy bedroom, as it were, our teenage bedroom of social reality. Uh, that, that's what fascinates me. Uh, when messy humans get their shiny new toys, the shine goes off very quickly.
0: Last question: um, You've been a very productive writer. You've been a very productive writer. Every two or four years, here comes a quite original novel, and that's been going on for several decades. You're 70 now, is that right? And uh, what I'm curious about, I think many people who are creative or do various things with their life is. Um, how do you sort of organize your life in relation to the projects and uh, a novel it looks like takes two or three years to bring about do you have future books in your mind the time that you're working on one or just are you just totally in that world and then when the book is done uh, you're nobody for a while and then you're relating to a new novel or what how's it Play out over time? You've been at this for a while. You've probably got a routine by now.
1: Well, um, I've become a real expert. I'm very good at not writing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so when I finish a novel, I like to leave time now to become a sort of sponge. Mm. Um, I'm also aware, so I turned 70 last year, so you know, that, that issue of mortality... I noticed
0: it. You noticed 70. It.
1: Yeah, More like touring. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's useful. Uh, how old could I make touring and making make sense? Now, you know, I have to be very cautious talking to you about this, but I thought having touring in the toddlerhood of old age hmm. rather than the sort of magnificent peak of it, Mm-hmm. Um, would at least allow me to uh, be sure that he'd have all his marbles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, um, the inevitable end approaches It takes me two or three, four years. It's about the length of a university course, really, to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Oh, that- um, how many more degrees, as it were, have I, have I got left? Uh, and that I think, for all of us who pass that age what mid sixties onwards you it, it, it's that ticking clock it sounds mm-hmm. in your head for me, the issue uh, then is when to stop and I guess to come back to Genesis for a moment, I think when curiosity dries up uh, i mean it's Hmm. It's curiosity that drives one, I think, to examine another thing.
0: Have you seen curiosity drive up in some of your older compatriots?
1: Yes. <clears> well, <throat> not only writers, but I think when curiosity dries up, you are at the point of mental death. Um, so you better just lie in the sun and hmm. smoke dope or whatever it is. You know, um, uh,
0: do you have things that keep curiosity going, that you wish that your friends, who were no longer
1: curious, had somehow done? I, I can't speak for or against my friends in this issue. I can only speak of myself. That uh, It's the thing I dread most, that going, hmm. and that would be the time to stop.
0: So you, you probably have an idea of what the symptoms are of declining curiosity. What are
1: they? It's a bit like Bartleby the Scrivener. Um, At every issue that presents itself, you'd say, I prefer not to. You you just sort of feel exhausted. Hmm. I mean, writing a novel often feels to me, at the the beginnings, like being back in the foothills, Mm -hmm. walking uphill day after day uh then you finish you reach that reach that peak then you have this lovely sponge-like not writing time mm. then you're back in these foothills when you feel you've no longer got the mental stamina to be walking uphill for the next two or three years i think then then it's all over um, i mean politicians have a real problem with you know when to get out mm-hmm. they, they, they usually have to fail and failure just swats them off the stage. Mm. Very rare that a politician thinks, I'll quit while I'm ahead, while everyone thinks I'm onto a good thing. Uh, I think maybe novelists could be a bit like that. um, Also, I observe in myself, or I fear it, sometimes maybe it's just paranoia, that a certain kind of thought richness that you have might be leaving you. I was in a conversation, a bit like this, uh, a couple of months ago, and I was halfway through a sentence, and the and the word I wanted, and a very ordinary word, suddenly vanished from me. Oops! The word was contradiction, and I couldn't find another word, and I ended up with a sort of incredible kind of cross-country run of <laughs> of small words to mm-hmm. express this thing, and I thought, I remember. Um, John Bailey, who was married to the novelist Iris Murdoch. Mm -hmm. um, And John Bailey said the first moment he perceived her Alzheimer's was one evening when she looked up and she said to him, how do you spell puzzle? I've written it with one z, and I've written it with two, and they both look wrong. Mm -hmm. And he said that was the moment Mm -hmm. when this highly super literate, knowledgeable Mm -hmm. philosopher, novelist, turned a corner. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if my contradiction was was my puzzle. (laughs) So you watch your cognition closely for? uh... Yeah. Every now and then, I mean, also emotional states. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. It's quite useful in the normal run of things to say, on 0 to 10, where am I emotionally? Okay because actually sometimes you could just live in your emotional field without ever asking yourself where Mm. you are in it. Um, And you you can surprise yourself. Uh, Matt Ridley, our our mutual friend, uh, gave a a little gathering, and there was a a researcher uh, at Newcastle who had done a wonderful study on happiness. He got people to uh, live with a clicker, and every two hours, click on 0 to 10 how happy they were. And then before all the results were uh, analyzed, he got them to predict when they were happiest. And they said when we went on holiday, uh, coming home and uh, watching telly and so on. When they looked at the data, it was so at odds with what they predicted. Mm. Amazing number of people clicked a, a huge, uptick in happiness on a Monday morning when they were back at work. Amazing. I mean, back with colleagues. uh, And interestingly enough, for a lot of people, some of their worst moments were being on holiday. Right. The flights, that miraculous machine again, uh, the hotel not ready or your room not ready, the children querulous, Mm -hmm. uh, the sun not shining. And there it's the sort of expectations against the reality. And the other thing was they ticked up when they got home from work and settled down in front of the telly. But after about an hour of telly, fantastic plummeting, Mm -hmm. um, really depressed them. But they didn't. It was their habit to watch. Mm -hmm. And these were a lot of households where the television is always on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they had not noticed that their own mood states had declined uh, watching television. So yeah, in, in, it, it, it's, it's salutary to check in on yourself in this way. You could sometimes live almost as an unconscious being. Mm-hmm. You float through your day without ever sort of checking in on yourself.
0: Well, this is, I think one of the things that artists in general do is they watch themselves watch the world, mm. and that's one advantage you've got as a mm. practiced artist. that. Uh, but everyone is can it do it. It's just a skill you have.
1: Yeah, uh, it goes with the, with the profession. I think less a skill, more a habit. But mm-hmm. it's a habit that anyone can mm-hmm. have. I mean, I think one of the greatest joys in life—and we don't quite have the words for it. Flow is not quite right, I think—is working on something difficult and making progress with it. And even better is working with others on something difficult and making progress with it.
0: Here, here. Let's call that a night. Thank you very much. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this seminar, you might enjoy other talks in this series. And also check out Longhouse's other podcast about long term thinking Conversations at the Interval. Thank you for listening.